Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Today, I am talking with my good friend and homeboy, the brilliant scholar Vincent Brown from Harvard University about his new book, Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War. Vincent is the author of The Reaper's Garden, which won multiple book awards. Uh, he's received Guggenheim and Mellon New Direction Fellowships and his online interactive map, Slave Revolt in Jamaica, 1760 to 1761. A, cartogra a cartographic <laughs> narrative has been viewed by 87,000 viewers in 184 countries. And his documentary, Herskovitz at the Heart of Blackness, broadcast nationally on PBS, won the John E. O'Connor Film Award and was chosen as Best Documentary at the Hollywood Black Film Festival. There's so much more, and I'm so excited to talk to you, Vince. Hey, Peniel. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And good to be back with you, man. We've got a lot to catch up on. You know, I think Tacky's Revolt is one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, hey, so, so. All right, we can stop right there. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> this is one of the best books I've ever read. And I tell you, know, I've, I've had a lot of authors here, uh, but Vince, I mean, one of the blurbs says Vince is a creative historian. It's really more than that. This is really prodigious work. The subtitle is The Story of an Atlantic Slave War. But I learned so much about wars within wars. This is a book that puts uh, Jamaican and sort of uh, transatlantic slave rebellion on par uh, with what we usually think of as the white heroes of uh, the British Empire and the, the, the uh, you know, Western European empires. And it's so, so interesting. So I want to um, start by saying, you know, what inspired you to do Tacky's Revolt? This has so many, this book really maps a new grammar of uh, political and intellectual discourse across uh, both sides of the Atlantic. It's really a stunning achievement. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I very much, very much appreciate that, especially coming from you, because you're a historian who I admire a lot, especially your narrative and analytical skill and your ability to to reframe histories in ways that allow them to see allow us to see them in in a new light. And that's really what I was trying to do with this history of slave revolt. As you alluded to, like we often think of the history of the Atlantic world and the history of European empires and the history of revolution as something that it has its kind of European core and maybe its black periphery, right? We still think in those terms that were laid out to us by the philosopher G.W.F. Hegel of the early 19th century, that, you know, Africa forms no historical part of the world. And as it turns out, you know, the discipline of history didn't really consider African history to be a significant subject until the mid 20th century, frankly. So one of the things I'm trying to do here is show how this slave revolt in Jamaica in 1760 and 1761, which was the largest slave revolt in the 18th century British empire, should actually be seen on a geopolitical transatlantic scale, not just seen as something that happens you know, between slaves and masters on a plantation or even something that happens within one colony, but something that one can see in these geopolitical terms as, as you said, a war within a war. Now, this is something that you've done with your histories of Black power and the civil rights movement, whereas many people think of the Black power movement and civil rights as something that happens strictly within a national context and strictly as being something that has to do with racial relations. I think in your work, you've always seen the African-American freedom struggle as part of a global Black struggle 
right? That, you know, we can't achieve our freedom here unless and until we achieve our freedom everywhere. That's the basic perspective I was applying to slave revolt uh, in this book. I want to read you something uh, from chapter one, War's Empire, uh, beginning the story of American slave revolt with West Africa's entanglement with European empire allows a shift in perspective, taking in the wider geography that shaped the course of the insurgency and the political imagination of its participants. I want us to talk about this because I think that you show us tacky, uh, you show us wager, um, you show us all these different uh, actors who have agency, but you also show them within the context. It's almost like this huge concentric circle where there are mm-hmm. these 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 outer uh, events like the Seven Years' War and sort of British Empire and imperialism happening. And then there's this inner core and you really tell it in a different way because you focus, uh, including these, uh, you know, for everybody listening, this book... Um, maps a new terrain in multiple ways because there are there are dozens of maps that show us in detail uh the different uprisings and the different wars plural plural that insurgent enslaved people in Jamaica carried out but you also show us the wars that were happening in Africa and the the the, the empires that were being built in Africa and how uh the interface with sort of African empire and European empire uh, thrust these different uh, Gold Coast uh, Coromante uh, uh, enslaved Africans into sort of new geographies. And they had to map, you talk about the contested loyalties, the terrain they mapped. Uh, You show us the Maroon societies and Maronich here. I mean, and you also show us the way in which the, the British, the Jamaican uh, imperialists were um, the British uh, imperialists in Jamaica were trying to narrate this, and you 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 really forge a counter narrative to all of this that provides uh, a voice for the voiceless. So, I want to start with there in terms of um, you know talk to us about Africa and sort of the research. I've never read a book where I could feel myself understanding. Um, the African story, parts of this story, and not just uh, the European parts of the story. And it's blended so seamlessly. Well, first of all, again, thanks. It's nice to be understood. <laughs> and you really, you really do understand what I was trying to do, which I appreciate. I think what you're, what you're recognizing is that there are a lot of moving parts to the story, right? And these moving parts you know, transcend the, the spaces that we usually think of as being distinct, right? So this story includes Europe, West Africa, the Caribbean, even uh, North America toward the end. Because what I was trying to do was show how the system uh, out of which this slave revolt arose, right, was interconnected and show how all of these moving parts were interrelated. So I guess to kind of start where, where you started there with Africa, oftentimes when we think about slave revolt, we think, okay, so there's the middle passage and then our history starts over again right, in the territory where we wound up, whether it be somewhere in the Caribbean or South America or North America. But of course, the Middle Passage was, you know, several horrifying, terrifying, excruciating, traumatizing weeks of a much longer journey. And what I wanted to do was to situate these people who ended up in Jamaica involved in the slave revolt in a larger history that that went back before the Middle Passage. Because 
it's really only, you know, when we understand how African history is working during the era of the slave trade, that we understand how all of these people turn up in the Americas as well, right? Because what's happening as European empires are expanding throughout the Americas, right, and fighting each other for territory, they are also shipping weapons into West Africa in order to trade for slaves. It's not only weapons, but, you know, guns, firearms are one of the principal objects of trade that they're trading to these West African polities who have their own conflicts going on. And as these European firearms flood into West Africa, the scale of these conflicts in West Africa increases, the lethality of these conflicts increases, but also the number of captives, war captives, for sale to the Europeans on the coast end up in the Americas, right? So that process of guns going into Africa, the scale of warfare increasing in West Africa, the scale of the slave trade increasing in West Africa, feeding these plantations that are the most profitable territories in European empires, right, is all symbiotic. And I needed to show how all those pieces fit together so that I could show you how these potential rebels end up in Jamaica in 1760 and 1761. So with that, the story of these warring African polities becomes crucial to the other story that I'm trying to tell in Jamaica. Unless you really introduce readers to the rise of Ashante on the Gold Coast, right? The, roughly the area that's now Ghana, their conflicts with the smaller polities um, uh, or like with the Fante Confederacy on the coast or with Akwamu, uh, which is another kind of big, important polity on the Gold Coast. Unless you understand those conflicts, you don't really understand the experiences that people from the Gold Coast who led this slave revolt in Jamaica bring with them to the Americas. And that's what I was trying to, to really get across to readers. We have a now a kind of building tradition of scholarship that makes these connections between Africa and the Americas. But I don't think we had fully understand slave revolt in those terms. And to sum up what you just said in terms of your own your own writing, you say um, such predatory slaving states, and you're talking about Oyo, Dahomey, and Asante inland from the Gold and Slave Coast, proliferated and gathered strength in the 18th century, and the privations and chaos attending their local wars made ever more refugees available for capture and sale abroad. That's right. Um, you know, I, I want to ask you about the Coromanti, but I want to ask you about the Coromanti uh, building on what you just said, because I thought what's extraordinary about the first two chapters, and we'll talk about uh, the, the subsequent chapters as well, but is the way in which you sketch out for the reader all these moving parts, um, and, and then you're going to, you reassemble them into sort of mm -hmm. this really gripping narrative. But I was fascinated by the number of different African, um, basically African captives, to use your language, captives yeah. who are forced to reinvent themselves on the fly. But I was so impressed by their intelligence, their resilience, uh, their survival skills, their strategies. Uh, let's talk about that in the creation of, of the Coromanti. Yeah, okay, so that's great. Let's go back to the middle passage that I alluded to just a minute ago, which is, you know, there is a tradition of scholarship that sees the middle passage as so traumatizing that essentially the people who found themselves enslaved in the Americas 
were completely remade as people, that maybe none of their experience in Africa actually mattered to them when they got to the Americas, right? Um, that they were essentially socially dead, as the common term comes, as slaves, and had to reinvent themselves completely in slavery. Now, the idea there is that, you know, slavery um, is basically the process of trying to um, make the enslaved person merely a subject of the slaveholder's will, right? They are not supposed to have any independent will and volition. Now, if you take that idea seriously as, a, as an accomplished fact that a slave was, in fact, nothing but an extension of the, the slaveholder's will, then you're going to miss all of that personal history that really matters to someone who finds themselves in the predicament of enslavement, right? That they may not be a slave in the ideal type sense, as I just laid out, but they happen to find themselves enslaved. And once we make that shift from thinking of slaves as kind of an accomplished fact to thinking of these people caught in this predicament of enslavement, suddenly their prior previous histories matters a lot to thinking about their behavior. That, as I said, leads me back to their experiences in Africa. Now, the the slave revolt in Jamaica in 1760 to 1761 was led, as far as we know, by uh, Akan speakers. The, the modern uh, Ghanaian language of Twi uh, is, 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 is Akan, is an Akan language. Roughly Akan speakers from the Gold Coast from modern Ghana. And people who, who were Akan speakers became notorious for staging rebellions through the late 17th and the first three quarters of the 18th century. They were called in the Americas Coromantes, uh, called Aminas in some territories, but Coromantes in the Anglophone territories of the Americas. And they staged revolts that we know about from Suriname all the way up to New York City from the late 17th century through the first three quarters of the 18th century, uh, with one of the largest of them being this revolt in Jamaica in 1760. So what I had to understand was the process of making a Coromantes identity in the Americas, because Coromante itself, the term, was not an identity that really obtained in West Africa. People had all kinds of other identifications that were more important to them with the polities that they had, with the language groups that they had, uh, with the religions um, that they had in West Africa. But the term Coromante came from, was a derivation from the term Cormanche, which was an early uh, West African fort on the Gold Coast that became a principal slave trading fort in the 17th century. And ever after, many people who came from the Gold Coast were just labeled Coromantes, right? Kind of after the name of that fort. But that then became, let's call it a category of identification um, in the Americas that people then, you know, organized around, right? Became something they, they came to closely identify with. And they could use that category of identification, that identity, if you want to use the term, um, in order to stage revolts, in order to decide, you know, who they were allied with, um, who they would be in fellowship with, and also kind of which other Africans they might find themselves pitted against who spoke different languages or worshipped di different gods or from different parts of the West African coast. So that process was a creative process that was always in transformation, that was shaped by the process of warfare in the Gold Coast, 
moving out to the Americas through the transatlantic slave trade, and then finding yourself uh, in the predicament of slavery in the Americas, where they had to decide, again, who they were going to be aligned with, who were going to be their fellows, what kinds of communities they were going to make, right? So again, kind of within and beneath the category of slave, within slavery, there are all of these other kinds of association going on that are going to determine who rebels and with whom and with what consequences. And that's the process that I was trying to understand, not just assuming that Coromanti was an identity that was relatively static, but understanding the process of people making, right, <laughs> in, in, in this world that was beset by violence and turmoil and change and, and privation, as you said, um, but that then allows people to make fellowship in Jamaica in a different way than they would have done in Africa. And I want to talk about that final piece of the puzzle, Jamaica. Chapter two is the Jamaican garrison. And really throughout, we get a, a, a vivid, detailed portrait of one, just the topography of Jamaica, uh, the, 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 the dense forest, the bay, um, uh, the rivers, the gullies. Uh, it's really the mountains. It's extraordinary. Um, but you also talk about uh, the way in which Jamaica becomes the most profitable British colony by the 1690s, but truly also the most dangerous. <laughs> White people are dying. Black enslaved people are dying. But talk to us about Jamaica and why is Jamaica so important here? But what, would, what was so attractive to the British besides the money uh, for staying. And it seems with what reading this book, seems like it was a very, very dangerous place to be, certainly for the enslaved Africans, but but for whites as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the answer is the money, the money, the money, the money, <laughs> right? Um, so kind of what happens over the course of really kind of European colonization, almost from the beginning, is Europeans learn that growing agricultural crops for exports, you know, second only to mining, which the Spanish really get into um, through, the, through the 16th century. Growing agricultural crops for export to Europe is about the most profitable enterprise that you can get into. And among those agricultural crops, the most profitable of those is sugar. Now, sugar requires huge amounts of labor to grow. Europeans had known this from the time they were planting sugar in the Mediterranean all the way out through their sugar plantations in the Atlantic islands off the coast of Africa, San Tome and Brazil, and then up into the Caribbean. So wherever you have people growing sugar with the enormous amounts of labor and with the hard regimentation that uh, sugar plantations developed certainly by, by the mid-17th century, uh, you have enslaved labor. Right? And, and huge quantities of enslaved labor. It takes so much energy to do that work, and yet it's so profitable, right? the product of that work, that it actually becomes cheaper, more profitable for planters to work people to death right? rather than feed them, house them, clothe them properly, allow them to start families and raise children, to work them to death and replace them with new captives through the African slave trade, right? That becomes cheaper than it is to allow people to survive. So what you have is a kind of demographic churn where the slave trade is, you know, kind of feeding the sugar plantation, which are utterly dependent on the slave trade. Um, but sugar plantation work is, is uh, the sugar plantations are so profitable that there's no real incentive to change that system. Now, this is happening in the tropics. 
in part because you have so much demographic churn. These, these territories with all these people coming in are nodes in a circuit of transatlantic disease, right? They're epidemic hotspots. So there are tropical diseases coming in, and the Europeans are dying of those tropical diseases as well. But these territories are so profitable, there are a lot of Europeans who figure, you know, I might as well take my chances, hope to get rich and get out before I die and get back to Europe and set myself up, you know, as a wealthy person. A lot of these people, especially in the British Empire, are maybe the second and third sons of prominent families. They're not people who are going to inherit the estates in the UK, in, in Great Britain, um, but they can make a fortune in the Caribbean and then come back to Britain and become very prominent, very influential people. So the world I'm describing there is a world in which there are a lot of people who come out to Britain hoping to get rich and then hoping to go back, and many of them do, and they're far wealthier than, than even those people who stayed. So the lobby for the Caribbean planters is incredibly influential in the mid-18th century. They even have you know, people elected to parliament. They're in the ear of the prime minister. Um, so it's quite profitable for people who survive right, and get out in time and then can just see uh, Caribbean territory as an investment. But it is also deadly. Now, you write here, paying attention to movements in space and over time offers a new perspective on the military maneuvers of the combatants. By mapping the narrative sketched by planters onto the geography of St. Mary's Parish, we can discern patterns of political intent for both the rebels and the counterinsurgents and see that Tacky's revolt was just one episode in a much larger Coromante war. So my question is, who was Tacky? And let's discreetly talk about Tacky's revolt, and then we're going to move on to the Coromante War. But I want to know who was Tacky, because he comes across here very, very interesting. And there's a number of different, very vivid sketches of um, different Ar- African leaders who are v- very reminiscent of, of basically Spartacus. You know, we think about Toussaint Louverture as the Black Spartacus, and uh, uh, Sudhir Hazarasingh has that book, Black Spartacus. But we see our Jamaican and West African Spartacus here uh, in, in multiple ways, too. So who was Tacky and what was Tacky's revolt? Yeah, so we have known this slave revolt in Jamaica in 1760 as Tacky's revolt ever since the earliest accounts of it by, by uh, British planters um, identified Tacky as one of the principal leaders. Now, we know Tacky or, Tacky or Techi is the name, uh, uh, a Ga name for a Gold Coast chieftain, right? So we know that Taki was probably um, a person of stature within Africa, and then perhaps was also a driver in Jamaica. We don't know much more about Taki, the principal figure. We do know that that first part of the revolt, the first phase of the revolt in the parish of St. Mary on the north side of the island that started on April 7, 1760, um, Tacky was among the leaders of that revolt, but he wasn't the only leader. There were other leaders named even in the first news accounts of the revolt. But when we get the summary accounts by planters like Edward Long, who wrote a three-volume history of Jamaica in 1774 that contained one of the longest early accounts of Tacky's revolt, we see Tacky named as that principal leader. Now, when I began to investigate that, what I wanted to know was as much as I could about Tacky. But what I found out is that there were so many other leaders, also people who may have been prominent people in Africa, 
who may have been drivers, um, that means prominent people on Caribbean plantations, who then became leaders of these slave revolts. So one of the people I found out that I ended up learning, I found out about that I ended up learning much more about than I learned about Taki himself was a leader named uh, Wager, also known by his African name, Apongo. And I learned from the diary of a plantation overseer that Apongo had been accustomed to visiting the British governor, uh, chief agent of Cape Coast Castle, which was Britain's principal fort on the Gold Coast, um, in the late 1730s, early 1740s. Now, that agent from Cape Coast Castle retires from the West African Company. He sets himself up in Jamaica as a planter. And years later, Apongo is himself captured, sold to the Europeans. He ends up in Jamaica, where he again encounters that former chief agent of Cape Coast Castle, who lays out a tablecloth for Apongo on Sunday visits and insinuates that, you know, when his slaveholder, when his master comes back to the island and the, the owner is a Royal Navy ship captain, that this former governor would have wager Opongo redeemed and sent back to West Africa. Now, this former governor, his name was John Cope, dies in 1756. And sometime in the intervening four years between 56 and 1760, wager becomes one of the principal leaders of this largest slave revolt in the 18th century British empire. So what I wanted to do when I found out about this story was retrace Apongo renamed wagers movements throughout the Atlantic world. And I discovered that not only was he a prominent figure in West Africa, but he also served for a year on a Royal Navy warship under his, his, his owner's uh, command, right? And then he was placed as a slave driver on that ship owner's plantation before he became a principal slave leader, right? Now, a slave revolt leader. So now this is kind of like a Spartacus figure, right? So someone who's a prominent military captain who turns his weapons against his masters. Um, and it turns out that wasn't a completely uncommon phenomenon. And so I kind of wrote Tacky into that larger story of these Africans who had military experience, who retained that when they came to Jamaica, and then who used that experience to fight the slaveholders during the slave revolt. Talk to us about um, the slave communities that you narrate here, um, including the Maroons. It's not really black and white in terms of people's loyalties. One of the things you know is that uh, it, it was often enslaved people themselves who um, uh were the people who betrayed plots and, and plots of insurrection. The Maroons in your narrative at times are used as a counterinsurgency to quell uh, not just Tacky's revolt, but um, the larger, wider Coromante wars uh, that are waged on the islands. So let's talk about that community of both Black women and men. Um, and what, you know, you talk about how, you know, some people set up autonomous independent societies, not just the Maroons, but even others. Uh, and, and the way in which there are shifting loyalties that are not necessarily just dependent on uh, language and ethnic characteristics, but dependent on a, a, a range of factors. Um, so talk about that. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. What I wanted to do first and foremost was to take Black politics seriously. 
to take the politics of the enslaved seriously. And what that meant was not to assume that I knew everything they wanted at all times because they happened to be enslaved, but to really take it as a question. What are they trying to achieve? Not only vis-a-vis the planters and the slave society, but vis-a-vis each other. And because I had started in Africa with conflicts in Africa that facilitated the growth of slavery, I had to think about how those conflicts either continued or transformed when people got to the Americas, right? And that's all part and parcel of just saying like, look, um, if I'm going to understand that, you know, there's a lot of white on white violence in this world too, right? <laughs> the, British are, the British are fighting the French for a hundred years in this period. The, 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 the English are fighting the Irish, right? The Scottish are sometimes in between them. There are a lot of different kinds of conflicts and we know how to take those seriously, right? Even while understanding that, you know, white people might unite in this world to enslave Africans and black people. So I wanted to flip that. And look at how, despite the fact that, you know, by the time that I'm writing, almost all the people who are in bondage are black and, you know, a majority of them are African, um, they still remain, they re- retain their own identities, their own communities, their own struggles that are not wholly defined by the power of slaveholders, right? And this is part of an effort not to reduce the history of slavery, uh, to uh, not to reduce the history of black people to the history of slavery as an institution, right? I think sometimes we we let those slide into each other. Where if we think we understand slavery as an institution and how it worked and how it oppressed black people, that then we're also understanding already black history. And what I'm saying is that those things are semi-autonomous, always related to each other in this period. But black history exceeds the history of slavery. It exceeds the history of the deprivations and the oppressions of of white people and Europeans. So I wanted to take that seriously. So I wanted to think about all the various kinds of communities, um, you might even call them polities, that Black people made within slavery. We know a little bit about the story of the Maroons, right? So from the time the British took uh, the island of Jamaica from the Spanish in 1755, there were groups of runaways that escaped kind of in the turmoil of that imperial conflict, but then continued to escape British plantations um, or English plantations as they as they developed. And they formed communities in hard to reach areas, often in the mountains. And they fought conflicts to maintain their own autonomy from plantation society. By the 1730s, uh, the British are engaged in a major war with these maroon communities in Jamaica. And the British don't even know that they'll be able to keep the island. In fact, the, the, the war is so hard fought that the British are, are compelled to sue for peace. And they sign treaties with the Maroons in 1739 and 1740 that grant them their autonomy. But these treaties also oblige the Maroons to police future slave revolts, which in order to maintain their autonomy, they do. They fulfill their end of a diplomatic bargain. And there you see how you know I'm treating the Maroons in terms of geopolitics and diplomacy, what they have to do to maintain their own autonomy is help the British suppress future slave revolts. So that sets them up as enemies of the slave revolt when we get to 1760. And I, it's clearly the case that the, the British might not have been able to suppress Tacky's revolt had it not been for this alliance with the Maroons, who are much better at fighting 
in the bush and in the mountains than uh, British militia and, uh, and army units are. Now, this larger Coromante war, one of the things you do both um, in your narrative and with these na- maps is show really the extent that Tacky's revolt, which was supposed to take place on the Whitsun holiday, and you can talk to us about the Whitsun, but it's a religious holiday. They mistakenly thought Easter Sunday was the holiday, and so they sort of jumped the gun a little bit. But there are these larger wars um, throughout, not just uh, the parish, uh, St. Mary's Parish, but um, you show here the parish of St. Elizabeth, um, St. James, St. Anne's. You show Westmoreland. Um, um, The maps here show September, October, uh, December, January. Um, it's It's so interesting, and it's this sort of huge campaign of of uh, not just insurrection, uh, but real a real politically motivated in a way re- rebellion. Um, so talk to us about the wider Coromante War and and how did that? In what ways did that succeed? And and ultimately, in what ways did it did it not? Yeah, at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about you know how this is a book that actually takes this conflict seriously and tries to see it on its own terms um, and really burrows into it and sees it in detail. One of the first things I did was you know, to try and, again, ask this question about what the rebels wanted. Of course, most of the sources we have uh, about the revolt were produced by slaveholders. And so they're obviously um, antagonistic to the desires of the rebels, and they don't tell us you know, everything we want to know about them. So what I did was I wanted to collect every source that I did have on the rebellion and plot these sources over time on a timeline, but also plot them on the map so I could figure out how the entire series of events played out across the Jamaican landscape in these various parishes that you mentioned um, over the course of about a year and a half. And what I found there is that you could begin to discern some of the strategic intent of the rebels. Um, when you saw their movements, their trajectory across the landscape. So mapping became a kind of method for me to interpret the revolt. And it was also, you know, the method that I'd used, as I said earlier, to try and integrate this world of Europe and West Africa and, and the Caribbean, to really see the geography of all of these places as being interconnected, integrated by the movements of people across these landscapes. And that's what I did with the revolt itself. So, you know, one of the things you see is that, you know, there are a series of events I broken up into about three phases. One, this early outbreak of Tacky's Revolt that, you know, begins on Easter 1760 uh, in the parish of St. Mary, and then a series of conspiracies and small uprisings across the island, and then a much bigger revolt that begins on the Whitsun holiday, uh, May 25th, 1760, in the parish of Westmoreland. And then that lasts much longer, in fact, than than Tacky's revolt in the parish of St. Mary. And toward the end of that revolt, you have a long forced march led by another African from the Gold Coast named Simon, um, all the way across to and into a third parish across the island before that's finally extinguished into 1761. So you could see what I think is really an attempt, a design to take the whole island but the problems of coordination, of timing, um, again, kind of the Whitson holiday versus 
versus Easter Sunday, um, but also con- communication across the entire island became more difficult for the enslaved than it did for the British, especially once the Royal Navy became involved. And the Royal Navy plays a crucial function in suppressing the rebellion. I spend a lot of time on naval counterinsurgency in the book because I think it helps to explain why it is the British, who are outnumbered um, initially, were able to suppress this revolt by the by 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 uh, really late 1760 and on into early 1761. So ultimately, that attempt to take the entire island is not successful, and one might think, given the overwhelming British firepower that could be brought to bear, um, after all, Jamaica was uh, the most powerful uh, British um, um, uh, military depot in the Americas. Um, one can think that it was doomed from the start. But one of the other things that I did was to kind of trace out the reverberations of the revolt. And you can see that people remembered it and that it inspired future revolts in Jamaica, but also elsewhere in the Americas. And so, you know, one can say that this revolt and its aims were suppressed in 1761, but one can't say that the desire to revolt and the belief that the British could be beaten, the hope that they could be beaten, that was not extinguished in 1761 when the British suppressed Tacky's revolt. Now, you talk about in Routes and Reverberations um, the impact of the larger Coromanti Wars. When we think about this period, we always think about the Haitian Revolution. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, when we you know, how does, how does Tacky, how do the Coromanti Wars, how does Jamaica impact? And you do this in Routes and Reverberations, but also in your epilogue, sort of make a, a few different arguments, including looking at sort of these two uh, British uh, uh, colonists at the time um, who write sort of competing memoirs about Tacky's, <laughs> you know, uh, revolt about the Coromanti Wars, you know? Um, um, and, and, and some are, one is really more depraved, I suppose, longs than, than the other. Um, but tell us about the, what are the reverberations? Do we see Tacky's revolt as a precursor to the Haitian revolution or something that might've even influenced the Haitian revolution? Because you, you talk about how these tales of, of slave uprisings, were were handed down generationally. People, enslaved Africans who were on the island for less than four months would hear about uprisings that occurred four decades before, even before they were born. So you, you do a great job there. But talk to us about the reverberations of the Coromanti Wars. And really, um, you know, you talk about wars empire, the, 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 the wars that the British were fighting against the French and the Portuguese. Um, um, and how these wars within wars, these African wars uh, that produced uh, the captives, but then these insurgent wars uh, have these reverberations that really impact the American Revolution and the Haitian Revolution as well. Yeah. So um, so this becomes a kind of crucial um, element in my attempt to show how these Black rebellions matter to uh, a history that we often think of as being larger, right? So again, Tacky's revolt in the most profitable, most militarily significant and best politically connected colony in the British Empire in America, right, happens during the Seven Years' War, 
But most historians haven't even considered it as part of the Seven Years' War. This despite the fact that many of the same soldiers and sailors and Marines who fight in other better-known campaigns in the Seven Years' War, including Quebec and Senegal and Martinique and Guadeloupe, then go to Jamaica to suppress Tacky's revolt. And yet it's seen as something else, right, despite the fact that it's a fundamentally important conflict. And you still get people trying to say, well, I don't know if it's really a front in the Seven Years' War, because we already know the Seven Years' War is between Europeans. But it is. As far as the people who are fighting it are concerned, this is what's happening. So I wanted to see those things as interconnected. Now, we also know the reverberations of the Seven Years' War um, are far and wide that the, thir- the, the colonists in the 13 North American colonies of the British Empire right, react against a whole new uh, raft of policies that were preferred by British imperial administrators in the wake of the Seven Years' War to reorganize um, and help to pay for what is now an expanded empire after, after their defeat of the French, decisive defeat of the French during the Seven Years' War. So we already know that you know the the reforms that that North Americans are revolting against in the 1770s are partly a result of the British experience in the Seven Years' War. What we haven't accounted for is the fact that they're also looking at how costly it was to suppress that revolt in Jamaica. That that's a fundamental part of British imperial mindset when they go to design these new colonial policies for for the Americas. So in that sense, Tacky's Revolt is indirectly part of the context for the American Revolution. But we can extend it out beyond that, which is that you know we see that you know about 500 or more, probably many more, but 500 black men, women, and children are officially killed in the suppression of the revolt. At least 500 more are exiled from the island rather than being killed. And those people go to places like British Honduras. They go to places like North America. We've tracked some to South Carolina, some to Virginia. We know that some are smuggled into French Saint-Domingue, which becomes Haiti. We know that in British Honduras, roughly the area that's now Belize, um, there's another revolt in 1765, probably led by many of these veterans of Tacky's Revolt. We don't know what happens to those people who go to South Carolina and Virginia, but we can assume that they tell the story of that revolt to whoever they encounter in North America. So Tacky's Revolt reverberates into North America. We know, as you alluded to, that people are telling the story of the 1760 revolts to Africans that are arriving in the island a half century later that that story is being kept alive by word of mouth, a kind of oppositional history being taught and learned on Jamaican plantations by the enslaved, right? Now, we also know that some of these people in Jamaica ended up in Saint-Domingue, where 30 years later, the Haitian Revolution begins. Now, while we don't have direct connections between Tacky's Revolt and the rebels of the Haitian Revolution, we know the Haitian Revolution is part of this world in which Africans are telling each other stories of rebellion against European empires. And so I think that that connection is pretty clear there. Now, the epilogue, I couldn't um, end this conversation without talking about Bob Marley. The epilogue has, uh, you know, war, you know, war in the East. The philosophy that hold one race superior and another. So the age of the Age of Slave War, you write um, in the epilogue 
uh, dominant peoples and nation states develop elaborate conventions for legitimating violence, maintaining their honor and victory and defeat, and deeming violence to be a normal, if unfortunate, feature of political struggle. But vis-a-vis those they dominate by daily habit, there is no limit to the lengths to which the powerful will go to maintain supremacy. They will commit atrocities and massacres to be sure, but they will disavow them too. They will refuse to admit that their combatants are legitimate enemies, and they will denigrate the past and present struggles of less powerful peoples. thought that was powerful and, and, and connects both this story to our own time in really, really important ways. Yeah. I mean, well, you and I have just lived through a long, long period, about 20 years of terror war, um, probably longer where, um, you know, our own country, the United States, our own military that we pay our taxes for has been engaged in these twilight struggles around the world with um, militants who are not seen to be legitimate combatants. Uh, And yet kind of, you know, the actions of our own government seems to produce, you know, more and more of these conflicts. They don't seem to be, uh, 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 they don't seem to be ended. They seem to just be perpetuated. So much so that people talk about a forever war uh, and an eternal war that we seem to be engaged in. You know, that just kind of made me think about these conflicts between imperial powers and these improvised militias um, in the period of Atlantic slavery that seemed to be unending. Uh, And so what you see there reflected is my kind of reflection on, um, you know, how it is that we identify legitimate and illegitimate combatants despite the fact that the fighting continues and continues and continues. You know, I'm going to close on one of the sentences that I really, I mean, my whole book is un, <laughs> underlined and marked in highlighter. But you talk about, talking about Jamaica in 1760, you say this slave war was part of a vast transatlantic phenomenon comprising the epic journeys of its combatants, their predecessors in struggle, and those they inspired. But it's hard to see where the story concluded. All of slaves' wars' essential features, rapacious exploitation, racial subjugation, and the proliferation of wars within wars would continue. But your final sentence, you say, as long as enslaved Africans and their descendants continued to fight, they would never be defeated. Yeah. I I still believe that. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that that concludes the book in such a um, poignant and powerful way um, you know, I, I, I'll close by saying, you know, any, do you have any last thoughts? Cause it, it's something, this is a book that I'm definitely going to teach as part of black politics, but, you know, in terms of for, for listeners, for the impact that you would want this book to have, by the way, everyone, this book has won multiple awards. Um, it's up for other big awards. Um, I definitely, you know, think this is a book that, you know, should win the Pulitzer Prize. That's not going to be announced for <laughs> June, but um, it's 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 that it's that book. And with this book, Vince, you vaulted into the rarefied air of some of the truly great historians of, of slavery. I'm up there uh, with so, you, Sadia Sadia Hartman, um, Stephen Hahn. Uh, you know, really, Du Bois, Black Reconstruction, uh, David Blight, Eric Foner. Uh, it's really that's, truly, that's too much, but I'll take mes- it. Mes- mesmerizing. It's really that good. It's it's really it's, an it's incredible much, but it's I'll an achievement. It. Well, it's I, an achievement. I, I, hey, it's a, it's been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to read carefully 
uh, and to talk to me about it, and to tease out some of the some of the things in the book that I think are important. I mean, I just come back to to taking Black history and Black politics seriously, to not us to not assuming that just because we kind of you know understand racism that we understand Black history and African American history and African history on its terms. That these are subjects that you know are just as important that matter just as much as the European history or the U.S. history that we're more accustomed to learning. That to me is, is, is the most important thing about the book is that, you know, hopefully we're finally coming around to taking these subjects as seriously as, as they deserve to be taken and to seeing them as consequential as they in fact were uh, in the history of humankind. Well, thank you, Vince. This has been a great conversation. We've been speaking with uh, my friend, Vincent Brown, who's the Charles Warren Professor of African-American History and Professor of American History at Harvard University. Uh, he's the author of the award-winning The Reaper's Garden, winner of many fellowships and prizes. And his latest book, uh, really, truly a brilliant book, a masterpiece, Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War. Uh, this has already won multiple prizes, but this is destined to be an enduring classic, the kind of book that's going to be taught and read many, many decades from now continuously. So thank you so much, my friend, for this conversation. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.